The time is now. Volume 7, Episode 134, this is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, your host of the podcast and the Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor. Just last week, we had a terrific panel discussion on a webinar that our Labor and Employment Department put on. It was about the United States Supreme Court's decision on June 29th of this year in Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard where the Supreme Court decided that schools and educational institutions cannot use race as a factor in making admissions decisions. But that decision did not have implications only in the educational world. While there were significant impacts and will be significant impacts in the educational world, there are also far-reaching implications for private employers and the diversity, equity, and inclusion programs that private employers have been creating and maintaining for the past several years. Joining me to discuss these significant issues are an esteemed panel, including current EEOC Commissioner Andrea Lucas, as well as two of my colleagues here at Cozen O'Connor, Deborah Friedman and Alan Pittler. For those of you who missed the webinar last week, I am rebroadcasting it in its entirety right here. I hope you're having a terrific summer. It's hard to believe we are a week away from September. Uh, against that depressing backdrop, welcome to our webinar today, the Supreme Court's Prohibition on the Consideration of Race in Student Admissions and the Impact on Employer DEI Programs, presented by Cozen O'Connor's Labor and Employment Department. I am Mike Schmidt, Vice Chair of Cozen O'Connor's Labor and Employment Department. Uh, and before we begin, I have a few housekeeping items to review with you. All participants are in listen-only mode. That means that you can hear the speakers, but nobody is able to hear you. If you have any questions during the webinar, you can submit them through the Q&A engagement tool. We will try to answer those in the course of answering the questions that we're going to get to during the webinar. If we don't, we will do our best to reach out to you separately after today's webinar to address your issue. All of the engagement tools that you see in front of you are resizable and movable, so feel free to move them around to get the most out of your desktop space and viewing pleasure. You can expand your slide area or maximize it to full screen simply by clicking on the arrows in the top right corner. Copy of today's slide deck and the SHRM certificate, if applicable, is available in the related content tool. If you are seeking CLE credits, please fill out the continuing education credits and post-event evaluation survey found on the right side of your screen during the webinar. The form will only be available for 15 minutes after the webinar ends. 
CLE credits cannot be guaranteed if you do not complete the form, and we request that you allow up to two weeks to receive your certificate of attendance. Lastly, you can find additional answers to any of your common technical issues located in the Help Engagement tool at the bottom of your screen. Well, the June 29th, 2023 decision in Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard, uh, perhaps not surprising to many people in its ruling, will have significant ramifications in both the educational world as well as with regard to employer diversity programs. And that's what we're going to spend some time in this hour talking about uh, today. Uh, we could spend a half day, if not a full day, talking about this stuff, but we're going to try to give you as much good information as we can. Joining me and doing really the, uh, the laboring oars here today uh, are a terrific and impressive group of panelists. First, of course, uh, EEOC Commissioner Andrea Lucas. Uh, Commissioner Lucas is a current commissioner of the United States Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Having been confirmed by the United States Senate in 2020 with a term currently expiring in July 2025. In addition to her active role at the EEOC in educating employers and employees about the laws enforced by the EEOC, Commissioner Lucas speaks and writes frequently on hot and emerging issues in employment law and civil rights, including the very topic we are discussing today. And she is always so gracious to appear frequently in our webinars here and on my podcast, Employment Law Now. Great I was able to get an opportunity for that shameless plug. Also joining us on this panel, Debbie Friedman, a terrific colleague of mine and a member in our Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen, resident in our Philadelphia office. And last, but of course, never least, Alan Pittler, also a terrific colleague of mine and a member in our Labor and Employment Department, resident in our Pittsburgh office. So what are we going to be uh, talking about today? We are going to talk about the June 29th Supreme Court decision. What were the facts? What was the holding? And did this set new precedent? We will look at the impact of the Supreme Court's decision on admissions and other educational-related decisions. We will then move beyond the educational world and talk about the role of Title VII and the impact that the Supreme Court's June 29th decision will have on employment-related decisions. We will look at the possible consequences that may occur from future Supreme Court decisions that we are expecting uh, in the next term, as well as takeaways from our panel. So, uh, Debbie, let me start with you for some table setting here. This was one of those decisions that we were all waiting for for some time, and then it came right at the end of the Supreme Court's term, as I said, on June 29th. It is not an employment law case per se, but there are significant ramifications for employers when it comes to things like DEI programs, resource groups, and other workplace policies and practices that attempt to create a certain workplace environment and a certain workforce. Debbie, can you briefly talk about what this case was about in terms of a quick statement of the facts and the holding? Sure, Mike, thank you. Both the Harvard and the UNC cases involved admissions programs where those universities used race as a factor in their college admissions processes, much as they would look at grades, recommendation letters, 
and extracurricular activities. And it was done with the goal of having a diverse student body with diverse perspectives and gaining the educational benefits from that. In these cases, the Supreme Court held that UNC's admissions processes violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and that Harvard's admission process violated the principles of the Equal Employment Protection Clause embodied in Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. And both were due to the fact that race was used as a factor in determining who got admitted to those institutions. Specifically, the court found there was no meaningful connection between the means employed, i.e. using race as a factor, and the goal of a diverse student body. And the court also reasoned that race was used as a negative in this situation because it advantaged some applicants and not others. The court also viewed the use of race in this context as stereotyping, stating that universities used race to treat all members of the same race as alike. Notably, the court did note that universities may consider an applicant's discussion of how race affects their life be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. And I just want to quickly highlight what the court did not hold as we go forward. The court's holding does not change Title VII, and the court's ruling does not change Executive Order 11246, which addresses federal contractors' affirmative action obligations. That's great. Thank you, Debbie. That's a, a real good way to start here. Um, given the current uh, makeup of the Supreme Court, the decision might not be all that surprising, and I don't think was particularly surprising to most people who were waiting for it. But was this a break from longstanding Supreme Court precedent on this issue? Yes, most experts view it as a decision, this decision, and both of them actually, as a break from precedent. If we go back 45 years, back to Regents of the University of California versus Baki, in that case, the United States Supreme Court recognized the educational benefits of diversity in the classroom and that they constitute a compelling government interest. While at the same time, they noted that universities can't go too far such as setting quotas. Then we look 25 years later in Grutter versus Bollinger, and there the United States Supreme Court held that race as a factor in the admissions process is permissible under the Equal Protection Clause, under Title VI, and under Section 1981. The catch is that it had to be narrowly tailored to further compelling government interest, such as set forth in the Bakke case. And in that case, in Grutter, the court found that race was part of a holistic admissions process, and therefore it was found to meet the test. Then we go most recently to 2016, where the court decided Fisher versus University of Texas at Austin. And in that case, it was yet another challenge to using race in the college admissions or university admissions process. And again, the court found that race as one factor in the admissions process implicated a compelling government interest of obtaining educational benefits that are associated with having a diverse student body and that race neutral alternatives were not available. 
Now fast forward to this past summer in the Harvard and UNC cases where the court found there was no compelling government interest and they further found that the holistic admissions process using race as a factor was not narrowly tailored to achieving the educational benefits of having a diverse student body. Great, thank you. Um, so let's talk about then the, uh, the aftermath uh, of this decision. Uh, Alan, I want to bring you in if we can. I think it's important to understand the bounds of the decisions, both for those listeners actually making admissions and other decisions in the education world, but also for our subsequent discussion during this hour of the decision's impact on employers and the workplace. Uh, first, Alan, let's tackle the former. In light of the court's decision, are there any potential situations where it would be lawful for a university or a college to use race uh, as a factor in the student admissions process? Uh, theoretically, the answer is yes, but for the overwhelming majority of institutions, the answer is clearly no. Uh, let me explain. The majority left the door open just a sliver for the possibility that there could be an extraordinary case that could satisfy the very high bar they set for considering race as a factor in college admissions. In this regard, in a footnote, the majority observed that military academies may have distinct interests different from other types of colleges, but indicated they would not address the issue because no military academy was a party to the cases before them. Also, the majority suggested that theoretically, race could be a factor if used as a narrowly tailored remedy for specific identified instances of past discrimination by an institution that violated either the Constitution or a statute. And finally, while the special circumstances of religious colleges were not addressed by the majority opinion, these institutions may have a First Amendment religious freedom argument for considering race as a factor in admissions, particularly in light of the Supreme Court's recent rulings in other cases involving the preeminence of religious freedoms. So the practical effect of this decision is that colleges should not consider race as a factor in student admissions unless a college is a military academy or religious institution that is willing to be the test case for an exception to the rule. So let's um, test that a little bit in terms of what realities may exist here. When I was reading this decision and thinking about the do's and the don'ts uh, of this decision, it reminded me a little of when the salary history bans were first enacted around the country. And the question we got all the time was something like, well, we can't ask about prior salary history, but what happens if a job applicant volunteers the salary history? So similarly in this context, Alan, are prospective students barred from revealing their race during the admissions process, such as in response to an essay prompt? Uh, I guess in other words, what if the college or the university learns about race through the application submission itself? Right, and <clears throat> let me uh, quote Chief Justice Roberts, who said, quote, nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. So while the majority expressly recognized that an applicant may reveal their race, 
Chief Justice Roberts also made it clear that in such circumstances, quote, students must be treated based on his or her experiences as an individual and not on the basis of race, uh, end of quote. So in other words, a student may reveal their race during the admissions process, but institutions must consider their individual experiences and not their race in evaluating the candidate. As Justice Roberts put it, institutions cannot consider race for race's sake in the admissions process. <clears throat> As a practical matter, <clears throat> it is extremely important that those who are involved with reviewing essays or who are otherwise involved in the admissions process understand this distinction and that institutions um, should give serious thought to giving uh, review of and establishing related policies, protocols, and training to ensure compliance with the decision. So again, as a takeaway, Alan, we're not saying that uh, either once a university learns about the applicant's race, uh, something uh, has to be done or they can no longer um, act on that application. And we're not saying that race in and of itself cannot be some factor uh, in the admissions process? Well, race should not be um, um, a factor, uh, a plus factor in the, in the process, but if somebody reveals their race, they certainly still may be considered, but the, the university must evaluate them based upon their individual experiences and can't make stereotypes or assumptions based upon uh, somebody's race. Alan, uh, does the decision permit schools to change admissions practices that may have, uh, for example, a disproportionate negative impact on underrepresented minorities? The majority decision uh, does not directly address this issue. Uh, but interestingly, um, during the course of the case, the um, Students for Fair Admissions group that brought the cases took the position that Harvard and UNC could have taken um, this sort of approach instead of using race as a factor in student admissions. So while this issue could still be subject to further litigation, a strong argument can be made that institutions may always investigate whether their policies and practices inadvertently have a disproportionate impact on screening out underrepresented minorities and may recalibrate their systems accordingly. For example, institutions may wish to consider whether legacy donor preference, standardized test scores, early admissions programs, and faculty staff child preferences are still appropriate factors in the admissions process or are historical remnants that should be discarded in whole or in part. Also, so, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna mention that also, uh, uh, as many may have heard, um, a recent complaint was filed against Harvard claiming that Harvard's use of legacy as a factor was racially discriminatory against underrepresented minorities. So it will be interesting to see how that case plays out, but that also highlights that um, uh, as in any other situation, uh, an institution should be permitted to uh, uh, engage in self-analysis to determine whether they may have policies that uh, expose them to litigation or that might not be consistent with uh, the law or their values. That's a great point. Um, just a couple of more questions uh, from the educational institution standpoint, and then I want to 
uh, turn to Title VII and the impact on private employers and, and certainly bring Commissioner Lucas in. Um, but, Alan, we've been talking about uh, admissions decisions so far. Uh, does the Supreme Court's decision have any implications for colleges and universities beyond admissions decisions? You're right. The uh, decision concerned admissions only, but the concept in the decision that race cannot be a factor when making so-called zero-sum admissions decisions will likely apply by logical extension to other zero-sum academic decisions where an advantage is given to one student um, is a uh, offset uh, by a loss to another. So in this regard, colleges should consider reviewing their scholarships, housing, clubs and associations, and other programs to identify anywhere race is a factor for participation or receipt of the benefit. Most colleges will probably find that there are no such issues. For example, most colleges already require that affinity groups must be open to anyone who wishes to participate regardless of race. But it is worth checking uh, and consulting with legal counsel if race is a factor for affording educational opportunities. Also, the decision could have practical implications because of misconceptions about its meaning, such as misconceptions that this decision somehow prohibits anti-discrimination efforts. All of the Supreme Court justices agreed on one point, that racial discrimination is against the law. To clear up any misconceptions, it may be helpful for institutions to reconfirm their commitment to equal opportunity, including prevention and remediation of racial discrimination on campus consistent with the law. Many have also wondered whether this decision has implications on recruitment of potential applicants. A strong argument can be made that institutions of higher education are still allowed to take proactive measures to increase the diversity of their applicant pools through targeted outreach, recruitment, and pathway programs. Many colleges are taking the position that race may still be used as a factor in recruiting efforts to encourage underrepresented groups to apply as long as race is not a factor in the actual admissions decision. In this regard, recruiting individuals to apply is not a zero-sum game like the admissions process. And also, there are parallels with the employment context with federal contractors who are actually required to have focused outreach efforts to recruit and encourage underrepresented minorities to apply. And then finally, as far as implications for colleges, uh, of course, colleges are also employers. So uh, as we will discuss shortly, they will need to review their employment policies as well. Uh, and so we've got this uh, decision which is providing uh, uh, some fodder for thought when it comes to educational decisions, um, but I'm curious as to whether this might become a topic for regulatory action. Um, last question for you, Alan, for the moment at least. Has the U.S. Department of Education weighed in on this, and if not, do we expect it to? Uh, yes, actually, last week the uh, civil rights divisions of both the U.S. Department of Education and the Department of Justice issued a joint Dear Colleague letter and also a questions and answers document regarding the Supreme Court's decision. Well, these documents do not have the force or effect of law, but do provide guidance for implementing admissions programs and promoting equal opportunity in a manner that the Department of Education and the Department of Justice believe is consistent with the Supreme Court's decision. Uh, both of these departments have also indicated that they plan on issuing more detailed joint guidance next month. Uh, 
Uh, the uh, Q&A and Dear Colleague letter that I referenced uh, may be found on the Department of Education Office of Civil Rights uh, website. You can also feel free to reach out to us as well uh, directly, and we're happy to get you copies of either or both of those documents. Um, thanks, Alan. Quickly back to you, Debbie, for a moment. I uh, have clients and even boards of directors of clients been talking with you about how this decision impacts the private employer sector and employer-employee relations in particular? Yes, Mike, this issue is front of minds for businesses and for their boards these days. To level set, the court's ruling does not directly impact employers' commitments to DEI in the workplace. It remains lawful for employers to have these programs, which are geared to ensuring that all employees, regardless of their background, are afforded equal employment opportunities. So employers can foster a diverse workplace. How you do so is key. For instance, employers can continue to do targeted recruiting aimed at increasing underrepresented groups and their participation in the talent pool to ensure that the talent pool is diverse. Employers cannot, however, and never could, establish quotas for hiring any particular group based on their race or any other protected characteristic. Employers also can and should continue to use diverse hiring panels to promote diversity of thought in hiring decisions. Panels should be reminded that they can and they never were permitted to favor one candidate over another based on their race or another protected characteristic. In other words, race cannot be used as a factor in selecting a particular candidate. Interviewers, however, can consider an applicant's life experiences and how those might have taught them skills that are valuable for the job that they're applying for. Employers also can and should continue training their workforces and board members on compliance with anti-discrimination and anti-harassment laws. At the same time, employers should be careful about training on implicit bias without checking current state laws. For instance, Florida's Stop Wokes Act, which prohibits employers from this training, has been enjoined. But today, the Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit is hearing oral arguments on this issue and might overturn that injunction. Employers also should not shut down their employee resource groups. The key is remembering that the purpose of these groups is to foster inclusion, not exclusion. And it's just one avenue for employees and allies to seek support from each other. If an ERG, however, is based on race or another protected characteristic, employers should ensure that membership and participation in that group is open to all employees, such as advocates, and that the opportunities that are offered to the ERGs do not foreclose opportunities for non-participants based on their race or other protected characteristics. And this can be in terms of promotions, educational resources, coaching, and other things like that. And finally, also if not done already, employers may want to consider adding ERGs based on factors that are not based on protected characteristics, such as employees that came from first-generation college or graduate um, degree families, or different socioeconomic levels and things of that nature. Thank you, uh, Debbie. Um, and so I want to drill down a little bit on some of uh, what you just talked about as a, as a great introduction. Uh, and 
nobody's uh, better to do that than uh, EEOC Commissioner Andrea Lucas, who, again, uh, is so gracious to join us and uh, give her perspective on these issues, and particularly as it relates to Title VII, the primary statute enforced by the EEOC. Commissioner Lucas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, for those who still don't know for some reason what the EEOC is, uh, again, in the spirit of table setting here, uh, can you give us a very quick lay of the land about the uh, EEOC and the role of the commissioners? Sure. The EEOC is a federal agency charged with enforcing federal civil rights laws prohibiting employment discrimination based on race, sex, and other protected characteristics. And our mission is to, quote, prevent and remedy unlawful employment discrimination and advance equal opportunity for all in the workplace. So the EEOC has a bipartisan leadership panel made up of five commissioners, one of which is, uh, that includes myself, and there's currently three Democrats and two Republicans on the panel. Um, and before I proceed any further, I do want to just put a, my standard disclaimer that as a single commissioner on a bipartisan panel, I can't speak on behalf of the commission by myself. So the views I express today are my own and don't necessarily reflect those of the EEOC or any other commissioner, except where I refer to the commission policy guidance or other documents or information published by the commission. And then in terms of the role of the commissioners, as I mentioned, the Commission's collective actions generally proceed by majority vote. So we operate as a, as a collective body. We vote on all matters that come before the Commission, including policy guidance, lit recs, etc. Title VII also authorizes individual commissioners to issue individual commissioners' charges of discrimination where appropriate. And the commissioners also typically engage in robust amounts of advocacy, outreach, and education efforts for stakeholders like today's event. Perfect. Thank you. Um, Commissioner, you came out with an opinion piece on the day the Supreme Court's decision was announced on June 29th. Uh, I suspect you were not surprised by the decision? I was not. Uh, it was consistent with how I expected the court to rule. Um, and I will note that in the wake of the decision, I mean, a lot of discussion has focused on the fact that the court overturned decades of precedent in Title VI, the higher education administration uh, admissions context. But from my perspective as an employment lawyer and employment advocate, the court's decision is less of a sea change than a realignment with civil rights principles in federal employment law that largely have been static since the 1970s. Um, so from my perspective, the way I view Students for Fair Emissions is the court really bringing higher education into closer parallel with the historically more restrictive standards of federal employment law. Yeah, which is interesting because one of the things that we've been talking to clients about is, is just that, that the decision hasn't really changed anything at all when it comes to private employer programs and specifically Title VII, but what it uh, has done perhaps is it has uh, sharpened the focus a little bit uh, on these issues and if anything has forced employers to really look back at their programs, look at what they're doing and make sure they continue to be in compliance with the long-standing Title VII rules. Exactly. One of the really interesting things uh, you wrote in that piece, Commissioner, uh, on June 29th was that the EEOC, and I'm quoting, is charged with enforcing equal opportunity at work, not equity. Our mission is to prevent and eliminate discrimination, not impose equitable outcomes. What did you mean by that? So words matter. Um, and there's lots of discussions about equity and equality. And I think that a lot of people sometimes think or claim that the terms are interchangeable concepts. They're not. Equality means treating employees the same. 
regardless of their race or sex or other protected characteristic. No disparate treatment allowed based on any protected characteristic. Equity, in contrast, often means treating employees differently or preferentially based solely on a protected characteristic in order to achieve an equal or quote-unquote balanced outcomes or aligned with some definition of fairness. Unlike equity, equality holds that in the words of Justice Thomas's SFFFK concurrence, the quote, two discriminatory wrongs cannot make a right, end quote. Title VII only requires and indeed only permits the pursuit of equality of opportunity, not equity of outcome. Indeed, Title VII expressly bars disparate treatment based on race, sex, or other protected characteristics. That's the default rule with only very limited constrained remedial exceptions. And Title VII's protections universally and even-handedly apply to employees of all races and all sexes. These equality principles mean that there's no distinct concept of quote-unquote reverse discrimination under Title VII. Any and all disparate treatment based on race is discrimination, no matter which groups of employee is harmed or benefits. That's been the longstanding position of the entire EEOC since the beginning of the agency, and was adopted by the Supreme Court in McDonald v. Santa Fe shortly thereafter in the 70s. In stark contrast to Title VII's requirements, equity theory, I would argue, defends certain types of discrimination based on race or sex as good. But again, in the words of Justice Thomas, the problem with an equity view is that whether an action, quote, relying on racial taxonomy is, quote, unquote, benign or benign, either turns on whose ox is gored or distinctions found only in the eye of the beholder. That's simply not the structure of Title VII, and it's not the mission of the EEOC. And so, yeah, I think a lot of the uh, discussion after the uh, Supreme Court's decision has been on race. But when we're talking about Title VII and when we're talking about um, employment-based decisions, certainly uh, educational-related decisions, we're not just talking about race, and we're not just talking about one particular race. Yes, race, sex, um, it's a host of protected characteristics. But it doesn't, you know, equity would... would uh, Equity programs would say the question is whether or not you are harming a particular race or a particular group, right? Um, the parlance of uh, BIPOC or underrepresented minorities. Equality theory, which I would argue is encompassed by Title VII, is focused on even-handedness towards everyone, regardless of falling in a particular category. And I think sometimes that gets lost in the discussion of protected characteristics because the assumption is that the only people who could be protected might be a particular subgroup of, of races. Um, it applies to everyone. Yeah, no, uh, no question about that. Um, and one of the uh, concepts that I think you mentioned, and I know Debbie mentioned a few minutes ago, was this uh, notion of uh, reverse discrimination cases. Uh, I know we've been seeing and hearing a, a bit of an uptick uh, in reverse discrimination cases being filed. Uh, assuming that's been your perspective, uh, from the EEOC vantage point, um, are there particular things that employers should be uh, thinking about or, or looking out for to avoid uh, reverse discrimination claims that they might not really even be aware uh, are a possibility? Yeah, so, you know, my article focused on poorly structured voluntary diversity programs. And I think the largest risk comes from ones that are equity focused, that uh, that come from the perspective that uh, you need to single out some uh, preference or some employment action solely for the benefit of, of certain groups. Um, no matter how uh, well meant those uh, efforts are, 
um, if you're making race-motivated decisions or, or instead strongly incentivizing race-based decisions, you're going to have problems. Um, and, and that's why, you know, my emphasis is that even though the Supreme Court's recent decision doesn't squarely change the legal risks from certain equity-focused corporate diversity programs, it does alter the practical risk because I think that it has really, uh, uh, as you said, woke some people up to the existing state of the law. Um, you know, I, I, I think, unfortunately, um, there was some misunderstandings from the history in the higher education emissions context that muddied the water in terms of the general public's understanding about the rules that applied to the employment context. But pretty much every competent employment lawyer knew and knows the legal risks existed and continued to exist from certain DEI programs and policies that explicitly incorporated or strongly incentivized race-based decision-making. Um, I suspect that some companies, unfortunately, adopted some of these DEI policies either without or maybe even against the advice of employment counsel. Um, and this, I think, is a cautionary tale. Um, and some of that may have been based on a, an assessment of the practical risk, that even if there were legal issues with the policies in general or as applied, there wasn't much likelihood of litigation over these DEI policies. That's clearly changed. Um, there certainly is a lot of media and plaintiff attention in this space. You have AGs weighing in on it, senators, et cetera. Um, I think the practical landscape has changed quite a bit, even if the legal landscape has not changed. And so I, I want to focus uh, for a moment on uh, what you just said, at least from the uh, legal landscape. Uh, the historical rules, uh, as you said a few minutes ago, involving race-based admission policies in the educational context was rooted in an exception that allowed for race to be considered as a factor, but no such broad exception had been recognized for Title VII purposes even before this June decision, as I think you just noted. Um, and, and even though some were relying on the education-related standards when justifying workplace programs. Do I have that right? Yes, that's right. So the Supreme Court has never blessed employers taking race-conscious employment actions based on interests motivated by workforce diversity. And, and in fact, over the last 50 years, I think the Supreme Court recognized a much higher threshold for employers to be allowed to consider race or, or even sex, for example, in affirmative action plans. What was that exception? Has there been a lot of litigation over those elements? Right, so the general rule like we've been discussing is that employers are not permitted to take employment actions motivated by protected characteristics. And there's a very limited exception for voluntary affirmative action plans. And this isn't just an OFCCP thing, this is specifically in the private employment, non-government contractor context. So since the 1970s and 80s under the Weber and Johnson cases, the Supreme Court authorized employers to consider race and sex only in very limited circumstances as part of voluntary remedial affirmative action plans. Uh, arguably, also, the Supreme Court in Ricci in the early 2000s may have narrowed that exception even further. And as a short sort of overarching matter, these remedial plans have to be temporary, they need to be narrowly tailored to the company or industry at issue, they need to be justified by a strong basis and evidence that remedial action is necessary. So in the course of appeals, there has been a fair amount of litigation. Often it doesn't come in the pure private sector. It's, it's, it's quite often uh, local governments. Um, but the course of appeals have generally read Weber to create a three-part test that a voluntary affirmative action program has to have a factual predicate, needs to be temporary, and it needs to not unnecessarily trammel interests of the white employee. 
And then in Johnson, the Supreme Court affirmed this and elaborate a little bit more on this key point, which is what's the factual factual predicate for a voluntary affirmative action uh, plan being appropriate. And that's that uh, there's three different ways you can typically show that. One, you can show actual past discrimination by the employer. Two, you can show the existence of a statistical disparity that would establish a pattern or practice case under Teamsters. Or three, you can show a manifest imbalance in traditionally segregated job categories. So that can be statistical or otherwise, and it's found by comparing the employer's workforce and the applicable labor market. Um, and I will note that the manifest imbalance that we see in Weber and in Johnson are situations where you have, for example, 2% representation uh, of African-Americans in the workforce when you actually have a 30 or 40% applicant pool. Or uh, in Johnson, zero women in, uh, in, in the workforce in a particular position when you clearly would have a much larger number of women available. So manifest really means manifest, significant, significant. Um, imbalance. <clears throat> and I do want to mm -hmm. highlight five takeaways that I think um, are important to keep in mind should employers be looking towards this limited exception for voluntary affirmative action programs. So first, um, and, and I think Debbie uh, mentioned a little bit about this, uh, even where you have an affirmative action program or in any context, an employer never can use quotas or engage in racial balancing. Second, even if you do have a valid affirmative action program, it's not valid in perpetuity. Once you've remedied that past discrimination or the significant statistical disparity or the manifest imbalance, you can't continue to use the affirmative action plan in order to maintain a quote unquote balanced workforce. Three, <clears throat> for purposes of determining this disparity or manifest imbalance, you need to make sure that you get the right comparator. You've got to compare your workforce to the applicable labor market. It's not sufficient to point to societal discrimination, systemic racism, general demographics in society, or as I see a, quite a few companies wanting to do their customer base. I understand why businesses might find all of those um, optically meaningful comparisons, but legally they aren't sufficient. Four, it's really important that if you do pursue a voluntary affirmative action program to make sure that it's actually valid because Courts in multiple circuits have held that the existence of an affirmative action plan constitutes direct evidence of discrimination unless the plan is valid. Um, so that's going to alter the burdens of proof there. And then finally, five, even if you have a, a diversity program, you defend it mostly as just a diversity program, not a Weber-Johnson affirmative action plan, that's not going to necessarily immunize it from liabilities. Uh, courts have treated diversity plans as invalid affirmative action programs where those uh, diversity plans focused on achieving our desired racial balance within the workforce and took race conscious action towards that goal. And so I think it's natural that um, clients, employers um, will ask a couple of questions in response to all this. Number one, should we just get rid of all of our employee resource groups? What would you say to that? I would say that if you have a race-neutral means of promoting equal opportunity in the workforce, you should continue to do that. And an employee resource group, where it's open truly to everyone, it remains completely appropriate. You do need to be very thoughtful, though, in each and every case to make sure that the, the devil's is not in the details, right? So there are a variety of uh, uh, existing and pre-existing race-neutral diversity programs that remain fine unless you find that they are being applied or executed in a manner that uh, ends up being race-conscious or race-exclusionary. 
Same uh, answer for affirmative action or diversity programs generally for those employers out there who are thinking to themselves, well, given the heightened focus and, and some of these rules and the Supreme Court decision, am I just better off not having any kind of program and sort of undoing what I think a lot of employers have done the past few years? I think a lot of companies should take a very hard look and audit them. They should hit employee employment council. They should take a careful look. Um, it's not sufficient to have good intentions. You need to comply with the law. Um, and there are some policies that I think should be scrapped entirely. Um, they're illegal. They're always illegal. They remain illegal. Uh, there are others that I think it's going to be a question of application and execution. Uh, does the EEOC uh, do any kind of outreach or training for employers uh, on these issues? Uh, we have a variety of, of trainings in this space, and, and I'm certainly uh, working hard to try to educate people and bring uh, awareness to this issue myself, and others have a variety of perspectives, and, and, and they do so from their perspective as well. Um, you know, I think that there is shared and universal interest at the commission level about a variety of race-neutral ways that can promote equal opportunity, and one of the best of those is eliminating unnecessary degree requirements. I think that's a classic example of something that would actually get at what many companies are hoping for, which is promoting equal opportunity for everyone. It's a completely race-neutral ma uh, uh, manner of getting at this. Uh, it eliminates, arguably, situations where you may have a racial disparate impact. Um, and uh, so, you know, arguably maybe required, not just a good best practice, but also one that may be required. Because again, the focus here is uh, you can continue to remedy and must and should remedy any discrimination that's in your, in your workforce. Um, uh, so that really should be your focus. Uh, don't try to fix discrimination that might be there by engaging in more discrimination. Clean up the discrimination you already have. When a company focuses on that, they're almost always going to be in the green. That's a great uh, takeaway. Uh, I want to go back quickly again to your June 29th article. You also raised in that article the likelihood that a couple of still pending cases before the Supreme Court uh, might further impact the permissible scope of corporate diversity plans. The two companion cases in particular, the cases of Muldrow versus St. Louis, uh, and Davis versus Legal Services Alabama, Inc., will ask whether an adverse action is broader than simply being an action with a tangible outcome, such as a termination. Uh, in fact, the Fifth Circuit just weighed in uh, on that with a broader interpretation of adverse action. Uh, how do you think a decision from the Supreme Court in those cases next term uh, might potentially impact this discussion on diversity and affirmative action plans in the employment context? Well, that's absolutely something that uh, employers should be watching closely this term. Um, the the cert, CERT grant happened the same week that the court issued the Harvard-UNC case, uh, uh, agreeing to hear Muldrow this upcoming October term. Davis actually remains in limbo, but it might be resolved by the court's eventual decision in Muldrow. Um, but you know, the, so the, the key uh, sort of is setting the table, as, as you say, so courts across the country uniformly the Title VII applies to hiring, promotion, termination, compensation decisions. Courts have a whole bunch of different ways to refer to this, but sometimes it's called tangible or material or ultimate employment decisions. But with the EUC and the DOJ, and again, this is the, the 
the global position of the EUC, not just my, my opinion, is to advocate for a broader textualist reading of what constitutes an adverse action in the workplace. And that existing position is that Title VII bars discrimination in all actions affecting terms, conditions, or privileges of employment, including actions that fall short of hiring, firing, promotion, or compensation. Um, as you noted, federal uh, appellate courts are, are beginning to change their position on that. Uh, with the Fifth Circuit's decision last week, I believe the courts are actually evenly split on this question. Um, and uh, and I will put a little shameless plug for myself. I was pleased to see Judge Ho cite my article in his concurring opinion in, in that uh, decision in the Hamilton case uh, and the en banc Fifth Circuit. So, you know, if the Supreme Court takes... Uh, uh, the similar position that, that the EEOC is advocating and the circuit courts are trending towards mm -hmm. uh, and it adopts a broader understanding of adverse action in Muldrow, this is going to open the door to more colorful discrimination challenges, period. And that's going to apply to possible challenges to DEI programs as much as any other traditional challenges or, or other ones that you might see in a, in a host of areas. Um, in terms of sort of the practical import I do think that some employers may have adopted certain popular race-conscious diversity initiatives under the impression that Title VII wasn't going to apply to those initiatives, as long as they didn't directly involve hiring or firing or compensation or promotion and demotion. So, for example, leadership development programs that are restricted to certain races or ethnicities. Um, in my opinion, those types of initiatives already pose significant legal and practical risk, even under the current state of the law. But certainly a decision by the Supreme Court of Muldrow that it applied a more expansive reading of the terms, conditions, and privileges uh, provision of Title VII could clarify and heighten the risks posed by that kind of program. Yeah, and so not to go too far afield uh, with this uh, topic at the moment, but uh, uh, an expansive interpretation of what is an adverse action will certainly be implicating the number of retaliation claims uh, that could potentially be brought. I mean, most people, uh, or many people know, I think that uh, one of, if not the most number of charges that the EEOC gets when you look at the annual statistics are retaliation charges more than any particular underlying uh, substantive Title VII violation. And uh, having uh, an adverse action include something beyond just that tangible demotion or termination uh, is really something that employers should focus on, not just when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion programs, but this larger question of uh, how are they reacting to complaints and involvement of employees uh, in underlying discrimination and harassment issues. Yes, although I think that honestly this decision may shift the balance in terms of our retaliation numbers versus the sort of underlying discrimination complaint. I do think that many plaintiffs proceed on a retaliation claim or have more luck on a retaliation claim because the standard has been a little bit easier to prove in that space with a lowering of the bar for what constitutes an adverse action for the underlying discrimination claim itself we may see a surge in discrimination charges across the board that may even things out a little bit more with retaliation that certainly makes sense uh so i want to give a little plug i guess to uh, one of your colleagues uh commissioner lucas uh, your colleague on the commission commissioner jocelyn samuels also authored a piece uh, a couple of weeks after you did on June 29th, uh, in which Commissioner Samuel, Samuel said, quote, Congress and the Supreme Court have long recognized that employment discrimination law sometimes requires employers to be conscious of race. 
uh, and that, quote, having a more diverse workplace can reduce the prevalence of harassment, a form of discrimination, end quote. You agree with Commissioner Samuel's sentiment there? Uh, I appreciate Vice Chair Samuel's sentiments, and I've had many thoughtful discussions with her about DEI, but respectfully, I think her article fails to engage with the key question facing employers today, the legal and practical risks of race and sex-conscious DEI initiatives adopted by many, many employers in the past few years in an attempt to achieve equity instead of equal opportunity. So when she asserts that employment law sometimes requires employers to be conscious of race, Vice Chair Samuels is referring to disparate impact discrimination facially neutral practices or policies that disproportionately negatively impact employees who are members of a particular racial group, uh, for example, or other protected characteristics. And she's correct that Title VII includes disparate impact liability, and she's correct that employers should absolutely audit their selection procedures to make sure that they don't have an improper exclusionary effect on any protected groups. But I don't, but ultimately I think that the point about disparate impact uh, liability is a red herring. No one's challenging employers engaging in privileged audits in which an outside counsel reviews aggregate data about race or other protected characteristics to determine if neutral selection procedure has an adverse impact. Um, and I'll also say just more globally, I think that the, many of the defenses of DEI programs in the wake of the Harvard-UNC decision, from Vice Chair Samuel's article to Chair Burrow's statement uh, in the wake of the decision to the letter by the Democrat AGs that I referred to, are focusing on a straw man of race-neutral initiatives. Um, frankly, neither uh, neither DEI proponents or DEI critics primarily are concerned about race-neutral diversity policies and practices. The focus here, I think, is the debate, the discussion, is on explicitly race-conscious, race-limited, equity-focused uh, equity policies and programs. So, you know, I'd submit that there's a very simple reason why my colleagues and the Democrat AGs and other employment law experts are not specifically defending those particular types of policies and programs, and that's because they generally are indefensible. And again, just to be clear, when we're talking about scope uh, and DEI programs, I know we're, we're spending a lot of time talking about um, uh, hiring and promotion and those kinds of decisions, but it's not limited to, or at least the issues that we're talking about are not just limited to those things. When, in the area of pay equity, for example, uh, and pay equity audits, these same principles would apply, wouldn't they? Sure. I mean, in terms of pay equity, when you're, that is an example where you do want to make sure that people who are doing the same work are receiving the same pay. That is an example where an, an equal outcome is quite important, um, provided you have the, the appropriate comparator. Um, but in terms of who gets promoted and, uh, who gets certain training or who gets selected for an interview, um, it's impossible to uh, ensure exact proportional representation to our country's demographics. We need to treat people as individuals. Um, and and treating people solely on racial groups is, uh, is, is going to run you afoul of the law. So, uh, as I said before, uh, Commissioner Lucas, I could spend probably all day uh, going through all of this with you. Uh, I, I always so appreciate uh, your graciousness in, in coming on and talking with us. I wanted to leave a few minutes um, for everyone to have uh, or to offer a, a particular takeaway uh, on this discussion. It's hard to believe we're 53 minutes in already. Um, Alan, uh, let me go back to you. Uh, any quick final takeaway from you on uh, the June 29th Supreme Court decision 
uh, and your thoughts on where we go from here. Yeah, just a, a quick uh, takeaway that um, uh, with uh, all the publicity about a divided Supreme Court, uh, all of the justices strongly condemn discrimination on the basis of race um, uh, and reaffirmed that the law prohibits it. So there are still many tools available to educational institutions and to employers to ensure equal opportunity and to prevent discrimination in ways that are consistent with the Supreme Court's decision. And uh, Debbie, uh, a final takeaway from you. We've been talking a little bit about an uptick in reverse discrimination cases. Um, any takeaway in terms of where we go from here on the private employer side and what employers might think of doing going forward? Well, assuming that employers' DEI programs currently are lawful, meaning they were lawful before the Supreme Court decision in the Harvard and UNC cases, I would say that employers should stay the course with their eyes wide open. They should audit their policies and programs and keep focusing on leveling the playing field and promoting inclusion, ensuring that their practices are for the benefit of the entire workforce and that they do not favor one group over another. Great. And uh, the last word, as I always like to do, is uh, yours, Commissioner Lucas. Uh, you've given us some terrific information. Uh, any takeaways that uh, employers and perhaps employees as well uh, should take from the Supreme Court's decision and moving into 2024? My final takeaway is that employers have no cause for concern if their diversity policies are race neutral and are focused on ensuring equal opportunity and expanding opportunity for all, or if they've carefully consulted with counsel about the limited and narrow situations in which a voluntary affirmative action program may be implemented under Weber, Johnson, and Ricci. But for everyone else, there's never been a better time to take a hard look at how your DEI programs are structured and any legal or practical risks posed by them. That is a, a great takeaway for all of this. And uh, I do want to thank you again, uh, my two terrific colleagues here at Cozen O'Connor, Debbie Friedman and Alan Pittler. Uh, of course, uh, EEOC Commissioner Andrea Lucas, thank you so much as always uh, for joining us for these. And thank you to all of you. We had uh, over 600 people attending this webinar, uh, and we are so appreciative of that all the time. Um, we thank you for joining us today. Uh, for this webinar, the Supreme Court's Prohibition on the Consideration of Race in Student Admissions and the Impact on Employer DEI Programs. Uh, as a reminder, before exiting the platform, please complete the Continuing Education Credits and Post-Event Evaluation Survey form found on the right of your screen. Uh, we really do read them. We really do rely on your comments for future planning. Uh, and to know what we can do better at and what topics might be of interest to you for future webinars. Uh, the forum will only be available for 15 minutes after this webinar ends, so please, please, please give us just a couple more minutes of your time. Uh, you should allow up to two weeks to receive your certificate of attendance given the numbers of uh, requests or the number of requests that we have received. If you submitted a question via the Q&A chat pod and it was not answered over the course of this webinar, we will do our best to reach out to you offline. Uh, in terms of final plug, um, labor, our Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor will be putting on its third annual Employer Summit for 2023. 
That will be this coming November, on November 1st and November 2nd. Uh, two half-day uh, webinars, all virtual, from 12 o'clock to 5 o'clock Eastern. Um, we will be getting out the registration invites and links uh, to our usual distribution list uh, probably early next week. Uh, if you're not sure whether you are on those distribution lists and you do want to make sure you get one of those, please reach out to us. We'd be happy uh, to get you the link November 1st and November 2nd, uh, our third annual employer summit to talk about this issue, but a whole host of other hot uh, and emerging labor and employment issues uh, that will affect all of you and your organizations. Again, on behalf of Debbie Allen and Commissioner Lucas, really want to thank you for taking uh, the time out of your important day and busy day to join us for this webinar. We hope that you, your friends, your relatives and colleagues all stay safe, healthy, and happy, uh, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. A fascinating discussion, and I appreciate all three of my terrific guests joining me for this really important panel discussion. It won't be the end of this discussion, of course, because there will be other implications, whether it is directly related to DEI programs with employers, whether it is the continued uptick in reverse discrimination claims that we will continue to see being brought against employers, or other claims and other initiatives brought about by the Supreme Court's June 29th decision. We will, as always, keep you posted. Until the next time, I hope all of you and your colleagues, your friends, and your families are safe and healthy and happy, and I also hope that all of your labor is productive. <laughs>